Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be wrapping up our summer programming where we spent a little bit of extra time looking at conferences and whether it makes sense to go or to JOMO or to engage virtually. We talked to Nancy, my virtual co-host. We talked to Mike Merrill about ASUGSV. We talked to Jenna Spinelli about podcast movement. You could check out our recent shows in August to get some of our perspectives on all that. Some really great takes from our guests, particularly those who attended in person. The final installment today is with Professor Corey Dolgan, who's also the president of the Society for the Study of Social Problems, also known as SSSP. They were having their conference in August. Corey was first on trending in education back in April. He and I stayed in touch since then. And uh, he was very gracious in offering me time with him while the conference was going on. And he was hosting it from an office space in Freedom Tower, which added to some of the gravitas of the experience, but also some of the oddness of it. We'll pick up here with my interview with Corey from Freedom Tower. All right. Mike Palmer here with Corey Dolgan up here on the 69th floor of Freedom Tower. Corey is the president of the Society for the Study of Social Problems, also known as SSSP. Right now, you're on this massive conference, 800 people, massive might be strong, but 800 is a big number. Virtual conference is happening. You were kind enough to invite me to see what we could uh, capture in the moment. How does it feel right now? First of all, physically being on top of the world, looking down on most of New York City, and it's quite an awesome view, but we're also totally aloof and alienated from it. So we're in this antiseptic, a very clean office space. And at the same time, you and I are sitting here there are hundreds and hundreds of people in session. Normally, we'd be in a hotel somewhere, most likely, and we'd be passing each other in the hallway. And instead, we're on Zoom. We just watched two sessions. Each had 15, 25 participants. And it went really well as these things go. So I'm excited to be the person to lead this organization through this very difficult time of having to do this online program that should have been in Chicago, Illinois, and Chicago is a great city to be in, but instead uh, people are all over the world participating in this conference. And so far, so good. Yeah. And I, I will say it's a liminal space, but it's also uh, amazing. I'm looking out over New York Harbor. I can see the Brooklyn Bridge. I can see Governor's Island. It's really remarkable. The conference physically being based in Chicago and then also reflecting back on the the history of activism in Chicago. One of the nice things about having it in Chicago was we would be able to look through this historical lens of Chicago protest and politics and be in the communities to be a part of what was happening now. And it's and right now Chicago is very vibrant when it comes to political movements and organizations. So losing that challenged us. And as I said, I think we did a good job of bringing that in to the conference. We don't bring the conference into the community the way we might have liked. But aside from the Social Action Awards, we have some great video recordings with Ida B. Wells' great-granddaughter, uh, Michelle Duster. We have a great interview with Essence McDowell, who is one of the co-founders of Lifting As They Climbed, which is a virtual tour of 
Black women uh, in history in the South Side of Chicago. And we have a radical history tour, which really looks at different protests uh, and radical movements in the history of Chicago, going back to the anarchists and the eight-hour day movement and some of the uh, Pullman uh, strikes and things of that sort. So we are able to take that history and bring it into the present. And I think in some ways that's one of the aspects, again, that we can offer as sociologists, as scholars, historians, social scientists, is that if we're in a moment where we see political opportunity, some people would say revolutionary possibilities, revolutionary moment, I, I don't know how you promote those except to look back and say, oh, we are wrong. <laughs> but I really do think that we're seeing a convergence right now. And on the one hand, we're seeing the rise of fascism all over the world, including in the U.S., but we're also seeing the rise of these global social movements, in particular ones that are about being anti-capitalist and about being anti-white supremacist. And so I think there are these possibilities again, but I think it's crucial that we inform these contemporary movements with a sense of history and with a, a look at what some of those dynamics were. How did these revolutionary moments of the 1960s or the 1930s turn into the 1940s and the 1970s, right? Yeah. And I think higher ed, we really see the impact of the social movements of the 60s and 70s on college campuses and in movements, certainly in the curriculum. So there, there was an impact, but we can also see how quickly they were institutionalized and how quickly they became part of the professionalism, part of the corporate nature, part of why is it that all colleges sell themselves to prospective students by promising their careers? They don't promise social justice. They, they don't promise you're going to be doing something meaningful as much as they provide where you're going to do something that's lucrative. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we lost the war. We, we won some battles, but we lost that war. But, you know, that, those battles and wars continue. I think we're at a particular moment where... The reason I wanted to do revolutionary sociology and be as provocative as I could be was to push that envelope, because I'm afraid that even if we see success, even if we see police reform, even if we see some climate reform, we see college campuses becoming more conducive to recycling and things of that sort, it becomes institutionalized back into the domination of power, mm -hmm. um, corporate uh, dollars, donors. Hegemony. Hegemony it is, my friend, yeah. yeah. Especially in sociology, and I mentioned Gramsci in my talk, we have got to be anti-hegemonic. And that anti-hegemonic can't simply be a reaction to what's happening now. It has to be informed by the history of those struggles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just the idea of studying social problems through the tumultuous time that we've been living in, even managing this conference, I'm sure, had to be its own set of uh, unique challenges. Uh, any reflections on the impact to the field of sociology and, and in particular, maybe the more revolutionary components of the field, the opportunities, the challenges that are tied to this uh, difficult set of circumstances that we've all found ourselves in? It's a great question. It's unfortunately one that we could talk about all day. There's so many strands. I would say that, you know, on a larger scale for sociologists now, it's impossible to think of anything as only local. And the pandemic has really emphasized the need for us to act internationally. And I think that sociology has the tools to meet that. We had a session today about decolonizing sociology and really the notion that if we go back to W.E.B. Du Bois 
as one of the founders, if not the founder of American sociology, it changes the discipline. Now, the struggle, which we were talking about earlier, is going to be, will we simply add Du Bois to the canon and look at his sociological brilliance and innovation? So much of what we consider American sociology, he did first and better. But will we also take up his revolutionary program? Will we take up his pan-Africanism? Will we take up the fact that he was a socialist and even belonged to the Communist Party? Will we take him in his fullness? And if so, when we think about internationalism and globalism, being global in our work, will we also be able to be accepting of the revolutionary nature of that challenge? Yeah, and your book, Kill It to Save It, is talking about the existential challenge to a certain extent that academia is facing, particularly if you're adopting a critical social justice lens, if you're also looking at the, the history of academia. Can you touch on some of the themes in your book and how that relates to the challenges that Triple uh, SP is facing and the challenge that academia and sociology are facing these days? Sure. Yeah, higher ed and education in general, has always, they've always focused um, on this dichotomy. On the one hand, education is supposed to be about indoctrination. It's supposed to be about socialization. It's bringing up the next generation into the values and culture and knowledge of the society that it's in. But it's also charged with innovation. It's also charged with creating what's going to be new. And so a lot of times that dichotomy results in conflict. And these institutions, especially higher ed, are rife with conflict. But I would suggest that the overriding corporate nature, especially of neoliberalism nowadays, really drives the universities. And it's a hotbed of leftism for the right because there is all this conflict and a lot of it's over innovation and tradition. Where will society go? People don't want it to go in certain directions. They want it to go in other directions. That gets fought out on college campuses. But the bigger politics of higher ed right now is corporate. There are a lot of things that you can do and say as university faculty. But what you can't do is threaten the bottom line. You can't threaten the donors. You can't threaten the board of trustees and, and where they get their money and how much they give. And I think they, one of the best cases and points was what happened to Stephen Salida, probably now, what, six, seven years ago. But it's one thing to be pro-boycott and divestment, pro-Palestinian rights, to speak out against the state of Israel's treatment of Palestinians, etc. But it's another to do that at universities where the major donors may be supporters of Israel and Zionism and see any critique of Israel as anti-Semitic. And that's what happened with Salida. He was a strong proponent of Palestinian rights, but because the institution that was about to hire him had huge donations coming from pro-Israel supporters, it was very clear that they had to assuage their donors and they actually fired him before he even started his job. One of the grossest, if you can imagine, leaving a job because you've been offered another job, you've gotten your letter to do, and, and then, of course, have no job. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then I would imagine that nowadays there are plenty of challenges for the population that SSSP is serving. You talked about it as graduate students in sociology as a big contingent. It's a very challenging time to be, you know, early in your academic career, trying to understand where sociology is heading. And then at the same time, there's a lot of opportunities around social action and activism that maybe hadn't presented themselves in the way that they've been presented this year. Do you have any advice for young sociologists or young academics who are now 
coming up within the system and are trying to understand how to chart their professional lives? Yeah, for the most part, don't listen to older scholars um, and mentors. I think that it's too much of a common sense in higher ed that graduate students have to navigate these, these many pressures. And you, you're locked into a, to a research assistantship. You're locked into who your dissertation advisors are. And I don't think those systems will change much, so I certainly understand uh, the predicament. But I think that the notion that you can't become a sociologist unless you either put off or depoliticize your values or your activism is wrong and wrongheaded. If there is a value to a professional organization like SSSP, it's that we publish activist research and that we support activist research. And you will always be able to find mentors and people to write letters. And so you don't have to listen to the advice that suggests wait until you have tenure, wait until you have a job, wait until you get your exams done. There's always a reason to put off Nina Simone sings, go slow. There's always a reason to go slow, but that is essentially the narrative of power. That's the narrative of, of people don't want you to make waves, certainly not under their watch. Marsh McLuhan said the medium is the message. Gil Scott Heron said the revolution will not be televised. We're in the midst of running a virtual conference right now. Any reflections on the, the specific challenge and opportunity around the digital dimension that's been opened up? On the one hand, everything about being a, a humanist sociologist tells me that Virtual conferences are a disaster. Luckily, we have a really good platform and things seem to be going okay so far. But I have to say that I think both McLuhan and, and, and Gil Scott Heron were right. I don't know that the revolution not being televised has as much to do with the technology as the power of who controls the technology. So whether it actually gets on the air or not is probably much more the political question. I think that we've done our best to use the opportunities that we have. And so Again, we were challenged, how are we going to get people here to this conference to partake in it? We decided to come up with a much more international strategy because the virtual nature of it meant that a lot of international scholars who couldn't afford to come to a conference in Chicago now could come. And so we cut our fees. We bolstered our Transnational Initiatives Committee scholarships so we could pay the registration fees and memberships for more international scholars. And we created a new international transnational initiatives committee, virtual task force, focusing on reaching out. We have a lot more sessions that are focused on the international. And it, part of my message in the address is if we're going to be revolutionary in our work and our thinking, as well as our action, we need to be more global. And in fact, the idea that someone like W.E.B. Du Bois really left behind some of his more, um, kind of localized sociological work and urban sociology, et cetera, and really became much more international and a promoter of Pan-Africanism, socialism, is part of what we need to still do. We're still much too provincial in American sociology. And part of decolonizing our subject and our discipline is going to be really looking globally at the leadership of activist sociologists around the world. Great stuff there with Corey down at Freedom Tower in Lower Manhattan. It was really breathtaking up there and also strange at the same time being in basically an empty office due to some of the rhythms of the day and also some of the realities of 
post-pandemic office life here in the summer of 2021. With that, we're going to conclude our conversation about conferences. We'll continue to track what's happening as these formats evolve. Hopefully we'll get out to more conferences, interview more conference organizers, panelists, attendees, you name it. If we've learned anything in our investigation so far, it's that it's a very fluid situation and the future of conferences is somewhat up in the air, although it does seem like there will continue to be a high-touch, in-person conference experience, but it may not be as inclusive. It may be more designed for folks who are movers and shakers and captains of industry. Let us know what you think. Hit us up at Trending in Ed on Twitter. We'll be back soon to pick up with Trending in Education Season 6. This is the last episode of season five uh, was quite a run through what I was hoping was going to be a year that would have a light at the end of the tunnel. Unfortunately, it looks like we're still in a bit of a tunnel. But again, as a parent of a two-year-old, my son Matthew really enjoys being in a tunnel. He likes running through them. Maybe this is time for us to enjoy being in a tunnel and looking forward to what we may find on the other side. Got a lot lined up coming in the fall. Please continue to listen. Thank you very much for your support. If you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. If you know anyone else out there who might be interested in this type of conversation, please let your friends know. We'd love to continue to grow our listenership that way. Follow us at Trending in Ed for all this information and more. And we'd love to hear more from you, our listeners. So be on the lookout for our listener survey, which we'll be sharing through Twitter. And also, we'd love to get more listeners' voices on the show as we continue to push forward in these challenging yet intriguing times. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is Trending in Education. Mm-hmm.